Yo, 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 what's up? It's your boy Howard Q hanging out with Double E, Ina Esco on the Verbally Effective Podcast. Player. Hi, everyone. This is Courtney McNeil, and I'm hanging with your girl, Ina Esco, on the Verbally Effective Podcast. This is I Make Mad Beats, CEO and founder of Unapologetic, and I am verbally effective because I am unapologetic, because I am passionate, because I'm sincere, because I am vulnerable, because I am me. Like Bruce Banner being bombarded by gamma rays, something happens to hip-hop producer Nemo when he becomes fully engulfed in the beats made in his laboratory. As he pieces together the latest addition to the thousands of creations he's made over the past decade, he feels a transformation akin to an out-of-body experience. And he comes out of with a whole different persona, an alter ego entitled I make mad beats. The enigmatic, faceless man behind the boards has built his reputation on an obsessive dedication to his craft, a mad scientist-like approach to tweaking samples, drums, and live instruments, and a signature sound that puts listeners in the emergency room with severely broken necks. I Make Mad Beats is both a rapper's producer and a producer's producer, following in the footsteps of influences such as DJ Premier, Jay Dilla, and Ill Mind. While most people first became aware of I Make Mad Beats from his 2009 collaborative project, The Transcontinental with Oxnard Rhyme Slinger Rock C, the story of the demented hip-hop recluse runs much deeper. Coming from a musical family, as he came of age in both Memphis, Tennessee and Orlando, Florida, he found himself consumed by music very early on. His move to New York would prove instrumental in the development of both his career and the I Make Mad Beats persona. After getting his foot in the door with an engineer position at the legendary Quad Studios, hip-hop's best began to take notice of the untapped talent coming from the quiet kid with the crazy big hair. Many of those connections helped build Nemo's debut, I Make Mad Beats, become what it is today. I Make Mad Beats may have been a long time in the making, but with the floodgates now ripped open, fans can expect to feel the effects of hip-hop's workhorse with an outpouring of upcoming material. Verbally effective, your double E, Ina Esco. Hanging out with you for episode 83. And check it out, y'all. I have Mr. Unapologetic in the building with me. Producer, engineer, James Dukes. What's up? I'm good. How you doing? Look, you already know I am great. <laughs> I am happy you're here. Yeah. And you know, when I first saw you, I was like, no mask. Yeah, that's... um. You know, that's been happening to me a lot recently. <laughs> recently? So yeah. that's a recent thing. Well, yeah. I think, like, a lot of people know about the mask. So in order to hide now, I just don't wear a mask. You know what? You're you right. Know, so. <laughs> You're right. What, what does yeah. that mask uh, represent? You know, I mentioned I mentioned often how much uh, I was inspired by Buster Rhymes, mm-hmm. who told me, um, you know, to find out who you are and what you are mm-hmm. and then turn break the knob, turning that up. Well, uh, when he told me that, I was still in college. So I went back to my dorm and um, just tried to figure out what that was. Mm -hmm. And the very next day in sociology class, I ain't never going to forget, I was in sociology class. And usually when I try to figure out something, I just draw it. Like if I'm trying to figure out who I am, let me draw myself. Mm -hmm. And I drew that mask. Um, Because... I wanted people to know how dedicated I was to my craft. I was so dedicated that I would remove my face to show you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now that mask, for me, it's a way to neutralize assumption. It's a way to neutralize being put in a box, 
right? So whether it's age, whether it's your race, whether it's how tall you are, all of these things people use to put you in a box. Okay, you're this old, you're this color, you're this, you're that. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think I have this person figured out, Mm -hmm. right? Then a guy walks up on you with a mask. Wow. And you don't know what's about to happen. (laughs) So I know, like, you know, you've been on the scene for a while now Mm -hmm. with the mask. And like you said, people probably like, when they see you without the mask, they have to be reintroduced to you now? Yeah, for sure. Oh, my. Usually there's, there's like, a whole perception to my persona that's just um, not true, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So usually that's fun for me because I usually know what they look like and they have no idea what I look like. Exactly. So I get to, like, watch them. Yeah. And just kind of see what they what they do. <laughs> Did it ever get uncomfortable under the mask? When it's hot. You know what I'm <laughs> Mine is less so hot. Uh, yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. So, uh, James, let's start at the beginning with your background. Yeah. Uh, you grew up in Memphis, right? Orange Mound. Orange Mound. Yeah. So how was it growing up here? Man, it was uh, it was tough. It was, um, I, I lived a very interesting life, like, I think so. I'm the son of a Guyanese immigrant who was raised in England, wow. and I was born in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, but I grew up in Memphis, mm-hmm. surrounded by none of that and okay. none of that culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on top of that, uh, I grew up in very interesting parts of Orange Mound, and went to White Station. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the people I was surrounded with were never in my same economic bracket. Um, so, you know, essentially I was a poor kid from Orange Mound, grew up around a whole bunch of people arguing over which color LLB and backpack they were going to get. Okay. Uh, and so then you multiply that by the fact that I sound weird because I have an immigrant mother, or at least that's how they would say it. Um, and then just the fact that I had very interesting tastes in music. What was your taste in music? Uh, anything. Mm-hmm. That was, that was the thing. It's like, now it's cool to like in any and everything. But back then, there, you know. You had to just listen to Mystic Styles. Yeah. <laughs> you, and know, you know, usually, like when you're young and you're exposed to different types of music, you know, yeah. you have a lot of creatives coming out of that realm. Yeah. You know, when they're exposed to that, when they're younger. Broaden horizons yield interesting results. Yes. Yeah. So was it? It was your dad, right? That used to like jazz. Oh yeah, my dad. He um, he listened to jazz because Memphis drivers can't drive. Those are his words. No, that's so, the truth. <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> He said the jazz kept him calm when he drove, so uh, I just got really into jazz. Mm-hmm. He also loved, uh, you know, like Curtis Mayfield, um, Patti LaBelle, mm-hmm. um, you know, all of, all of that level, Al Green. Um, those were the records he would play that I would love, and then I would eventually sample and make beats. With. Wow. Yeah. Okay, back to White Station. What were yeah. you involved in at White Station? Any extracurricular activities? Um... <laughs> So ninth grade at White Station, my brother, he was two years ahead of me. The first day of school, the assistant principal pushes me up against the wall and says, are you a troublemaker? What? I was just like, what's going on? And it's, yeah, it's because um, my brother had an interesting uh, high school career. And so being his brother set me up to, <laughs> set me up to fall into that, that bracket of thought. Um, it was interesting. It, it was just, uh, again, like being so far removed from, you know, the realities that you live in and you're surrounded by other people's realities, you know, uh, that that made it for, it just made it weird. It, it made it that I had to be two people in a day, mm-hmm. you know, like when I woke up and walked to the school bus, I had to be 
G enough to where I didn't get beat up, picked on, or called, whatever. And then as soon as I get off that bus, I got to transform that or else I'm going to scare these people. Wow. You know? And then when I get back on the bus, you know, yeah. I got to, you know what I'm saying? So it was just a very dynamic day every day, you know? Wow. Okay. <laughs> so after White Station, mm-hmm. I know you moved to New York. Was it right after when you graduated? I actually spent uh, a couple years in Orlando. I got, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to UCF. Uh, computer science. Uh, I got some cool scholarships for math, and I've been programming at White Station. Oh. Um, so, yeah, I actually started off there, and then I finished in. I got a chance to finish in New York, mm-hmm. and uh, to be transparent, I only cared about going up there for music. So I just took that as an opportunity to go up there for music, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. So after after a couple of years, I went. I ended up in Long Island. Wow, what yeah. school did you attend in New York? Um, State University of New York, Old Westbury in Long Island. Okay. Yeah, Did you yeah, study yeah. music there? I have never studied music in my life. Never? Never. I've never been formally uh, educated on any music, anything, engineering, none of that stuff. Okay. Okay, guys. <laughs> so you moved from Florida to New York. Yeah. And you went to school. And where did did you want you wanted to? You mentioned you wanted to go to New York for the music because you knew that was like the mecca. Yeah. Where you could connect. Definitely. And build. So how did that all come about? Like I said, my brother was two years ahead of me. He he everything that I did at the time he did it eighteen times better than me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was. He's got a he's a very natural talent in music, um, but he wanted to go to Full Sail University, which is a university in Orlando. Uh, this focuses on things like production, engineering, all kinds of creative things, and uh, it just costs too much money. Yeah. Uh, so we, and so while my dad didn't necessarily say, "Hey, you can't do that," I just remembered him shutting down my brother, who was way better mm-hmm. at that than I was, uh, and so. I just, you know, I went ahead and did the uh, let me get a safe computer science degree. Meanwhile, ulterior motive. All right, get good at this music thing really fast, as fast as you can. <laughs> and you know what I'm saying? And set myself up for success. You know? Wow. So while you were in New York, how did you get to rub elbows with some of these big names while you were learning? Um, Being obsessed. Uh, <laughs> being quite honest. Uh, I was I was known for um, just not doing anything other than make beats. Like I was in college and I didn't want to go to no frat parties. I didn't want to do none of that stuff. All I want to do is make beats. And uh, I got a call from a friend who said uh, that he was going to be in the studio with Dipset at Quad. And he was like, yo, man, they be doing mixtapes all the time. They always need beats, this and that. He's like, yo, you should come up here on Saturday and just bring a whole bunch of beats. I said, all right, cool, all right, cool. So I, I, you know, I took the train into Manhattan, got up there, Dipset wasn't there. They weren't there. Nobody was there. Oh, the whole studio was empty. And um, and so I just, I asked them, I was like, yo, you mind if I just go in the studio and just pull up some sessions and just listen to some beats and stuff? They were like, yeah, man, whatever. Everybody was getting high in the lobby. <laughs> and I was the only person in there who wanted to be in the studio. So I started pulling up beats and, um, and just mixing stuff, running them through analog devices. And the owner of the studio, uh, he comes up the elevator. Now, I'm not supposed to be there. Like, this was a hookup situation. <laughs> um, and so my man, he, he runs in, and he's like, hey, man, uh, you got to get out of here because the owner's coming up. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, 
but all of my hard drives is hooked up. Everything is set up. I'm like, yeah. bro, I'm not leaving this. Like, what are you seat. doing? <laughs> yeah. He's like, I don't know. I don't know. Owner walks in. And so I'm just like shook. He's like, who is this guy? My man Randy, he says, oh, yeah, that's my friend. Uh, that's my homie, man. Like, he's just a dude. You know, he, he's, he's good people. It's all good, et cetera, et cetera. The owner looks at me and he says, who was that you were just playing? I said, a beat that I made. He was like, yo, you mixed that? I said, yeah. He said, hmm, you ever thought about applying for an internship here? Damn. And now, me being the truthful and transparent person that I am, my first instinct was to say no, <laughs> mm. because I never thought about that. Mm-hmm. My man Randy was right behind him over his shoulder, and he was like, you say yes, say yes, yes, say yes. <laughs> and so uh, so I said, yeah. And he said, all right, cool, you know, submit a resume. And a month later, I was at Quad uh, interning, and that's how I began to meet people. Wow. Yeah. Like, some, who are some of the people that you've met and worked with at Quad? Um, man, the very first, I had to get um, a really good fruit bowl for Missy Elliott. And uh, I had to go to Whole Foods, get the right, you know, apples and stuff, make sure they were shiny. But she was really nice. Then, uh, <laughs> <Missy>. <laughs> then uh, after you know, after my internship, and I started to assist uh, Ludacris, Scott Storch, The Roots, um, Talib Kweli, Common, um, Dipset finally came through. Uh, Trey Songz was one of my first sessions. Mm. Uh, Solange Knowles. Um, Man, anybody who was popping back then, like. So you did it all, not only hip hop, R and B. Yeah, yeah. We, my, I mean, my very first session was a gospel choir. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So, what made you move back from New York? Um, I would say a handful of things. I, I'm a really big. I really believe in purpose, and I really believe in. Uh, I don't believe in coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um. And so, you know, there were a couple things saying that, you know, maybe my run in New York was on the other side of it, you know, on the other side of of being there. Everything was still going good. I was still doing well. Um, But then I got a call from my dad who told me that he was having some heart issues. And, um, you know, he didn't know how he felt and he didn't know what was going to happen. Now, I was raised by a single father. Um... And so my admiration for my dad is, is through the roof, you know. Uh, you know, just watching all the things that he went through to raise us and the conditions and the situation we were in. Um, and I know how many people didn't believe he could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to see him, you know, fall and rise in, in his own personal issues. And uh, I know I had been down a tunnel of chasing my dreams <clears throat> for a few years. And uh, none of that mattered in comparison to my dad. Um, so I knew I had to come back. You came back? Yeah. Was your dad okay when you got back, or did he go through? Yeah, he, he was eventually better. You know, he, he um, he's one of those dads that, like, you got to, like, really pester him to find out, <laughs> like, how he's doing, you know? Like with a lot of parents. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're like, I'm okay. No, nah, man. They don't want you to worry. Exactly. They want you to live your own life. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so, but yeah, he, he he was eventually all good, you know. Um, but the funny thing about it was that, like, he was on a quest to, like, for me to gain weight, you know? <laughs> really? Yeah. So, because I, I was I was 
ridiculously skinny. Uh, you know, uh, I'm in them studios. Was you eating? I was not eating. Just I was just working. working. That was it. You know, that was it. I've gotten in trouble that way. I don't want to get into it, but <laughs> uh, I've definitely had some issues just because I, I wasn't eating. Mm. But uh, no, I was. You know, I'm six one. I was like a buck sixty. Mm-mm. And uh, <laughs> you know, now I'm like a buck ninety five. Yeah, so thirty five pounds less than I am now. Um, and so he was, you know, he was just cooking and cooking and cooking and cooking. So it was just funny that like his goal was still to like take care of me, and you know, oh, this is funny. So how did he feel about you being in music? Uh, that's a good question. You know, <laughs> at that point you were yeah. already into it. Yeah, I think yeah at that point. It was like, I, I guess I had kind of proven, mm-hmm. um, you know, that I could live in that world, in a creative world, and thrive. Um, you know, it's funny. I have two guys on my team now. Their parents are, like, their biggest fan. Like, I mean, this one one guy who's on my team, <laughs> like, this man is, in, is hit, like, my Instagram notifications is him every day. Like, yeah. just because <laughs> his parents is always shouting me out, shouting him out, and responding to everything that we post, and... It's just it's crazy, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and I love that, you know. I think that's great. That wasn't necessarily my dad, but on the flip side, my dad never tried to stop me. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad never threw me some doubtful words or none of that that's stuff. Good. You know, he just okay. That's what you want to do, mm-hmm. okay. And it was that simple. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now I think uh, I think he's. I think he's proud, you know. I, I would. I'm sure he yeah. is. I'm sure he is, James. Okay, so when you moved back to Memphis from New York, how did that shape your whole idea of music at this point, and you know, shape your career trajectory? It was at first. It was kind of sad. Um, like I had grown so used to the energy in New York, right? So in New York, a lot of energy. Man, you could feel it when you're walking down the street. I tell people all the time, you know. There's a dude in New York kicking a rock like he's trying to be an Olympic rock kicker. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and and you just feed off of that mm-hmm. energy that's all around you. Like, you know, and it, it it's it just it fuels your drive, your passion, all of that stuff. And when you get back to Memphis, um, you know, it, it was a lot of people asking me to just, you know, calm down, chill, like let's go out for drinks, let's do that, let's do this. And um, and I, I just began to feel kind of like a fish out of water, you know, just like that energy. Not only would I feed off of it, um, but also I found that there was just a much more relaxed energy here. And to these people, I was just like a maniac. Really? Yeah, you know, I was just like, you know, like my, the way I was moving was like, it was just too much. Mm-hmm. It was too much because I really cared about my craft. I really cared about meeting people, traveling, and making things happen. I was very ambitious, you know, um, but I, it was hard to find that here. So, um, so initially when I got back here, it was actually a kind of um, a social dark age for me. I kind of um, just really stayed to myself um, and just operated long distance with clients, you know, abroad that I had met in New York or, you know, through traveling. Um, and then I met a guy who uh I met a young rapper named Pro. And uh what's up, Pro? (laughs) Yeah. Um one of my homies, he was like, Man, you gotta come out to this hip hop show, man. It's at the high tone. All right, cool, man. I don't know. I think I'm gonna chill. Nah, maybe you should come out. All right, I'll come out, man, damn. And um 
I uh, I walked into the high tone and this dude's rapping on stage and I just remember hearing his voice so clear. Mm-hmm. I just be, you know, usually underground hip hop is, you know what I'm saying? And this guy who's so clear. And you want to know what was the first, I mean, aside from the clarity of his voice, uh, the next thing that I noticed, it is extremely rare for an underground hip hop show to be either equally or more filled with women. Mm. <laughs> That's rare. That's very that rare. women were up in there. Yes, mm-hmm. they were. <laughs> they were there. And I was like, what is this? How does this happen? You know. Um, and, you know, and Pro was the man. Like, everybody loved Pro. You know, and if they didn't love Pro, they hated on Pro because everybody loved Pro. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, anyway, I met Pro and we started to uh, to build a relationship, man. And him being the most popular rapper in Memphis uh, kind of brought me out of whatever cocoon I was in. Awesome. Yeah. You know what? It reminds me of when I first met Pro. He was in K97's Next Big Thing contest. Mm-hmm. And he was, like you said, his voice was so clear. You could understand what he was saying. He was different. Mm-hmm. You know, what he was talking about was different. How he looked was different. And I was team pro ever since I met pro. That's love. So he is awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you met pro, that's when the whole unapologetic began? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. I, pro was a part of a team. Okay. Um, that I'll just say this. Like, he was a part of the team that, eventually, you know, eventually, like, I joined their team. Um, and my role in their team was 100% to just be a producer engineer. Like, I didn't want to be a leader. I didn't want to do no management. I didn't want to do none of that stuff. I just wanted to stay in the studio all day, make music, and mix records. That was it, you know. Um, That didn't really work out. So that team collapsed. What happened? Um, Man, I wish pros here. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Were you the only one dedicated to doing that? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll just say this, like, um, I guess I don't just blame the people around. I also blame myself in a way because I had also began to, um, how do I put this? I had began to settle and allow uh, you know, people moving not at my level to be okay. Right? Because it was so hard to find. And so while I'm in the studio, while I'm working, while I'm dedicated to my craft, uh, there were people who weren't, who were, um, you know, distracted. I'll just say that, mm-hmm. right? And those distractions become cancers, uh, and they begin to, you know, disrupt or they they break down a team. Yeah. Um, and uh, one day there was a pretty big opportunity on the table for the team, uh, thousands of dollars on the line, big opportunities on the line, big level representation on the line. And uh, all the things that I just mentioned formed a breakdown that made sure that that didn't happen. And that's when I knew that I couldn't do that anymore because I had spent too much of my life preparing uh, for greatness and to get to the next level. Um, You know, I've, I've just done so much to make sure that I'm the right person at the right time. You know, I'm, I'm always training. And so, you know, when that shot comes, I'm ready. And if somebody makes it so that I don't get a chance to take that shot, it's a problem. Um, and that's what happened. And so I knew I had to be out. You had to be 
Yeah. You had to go for what you knew at that point, huh? Mm-hmm. Wow. Had to be up. Wow. You know what? Just, you know, when you came back to Memphis and at that point, what year was that? 11. 2011. So mm. what did you think about the whole Memphis uh, music scene when you came back? Had it changed a lot from when you left? It changed. It definitely changed. It de- I mean, the mere fact that Pro existed was yeah. it was evidence that it changed. Uh, even like the reason why I didn't want to go out was because I felt like I knew exactly what I was going to see and witness. Mm-hmm. And while I was a fan, you know, it was funny. Like I grew up listening to, you know, three, six and just like everybody else did. But I also listened to Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul and, mm-hmm. and you know, whoever else. And, you know what I'm saying? I, that's the thing. It, it wasn't that I ever disliked that music or that I ever wasn't a part of that culture. It was just that for some reason, listening to anything other than that otherized you. Right. Um, and so for me, that was always like a stain, you know, in my mind that like I either need to fit into this box or I'm just another weird guy, yeah. you know. And um, and when I came back. I went to that show and then I saw a pro and I was like, all right, dude is clear. He couldn't be. He's not from Memphis, you know, what I'm saying or, you know, and I started meeting other people. I met Cities of Eve and then I met. um you know, a whole bunch of this, these local artists and these these people out here, and all of them were trying to push the culture forward. Like, all of them, they felt the way I felt. Like, they all had love and respect for the OGs. Mm-hmm. But the OGs were different from their OGs. Definitely. You know, they had always, I think people often forget that that's what we do in Memphis, right? We innovate before it's called innovation. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. It's just, it just, it just, we don't know what it is yet. You know what, and, and and that's the thing about it. It's, it seems like that Memphis music has always been ahead of its time, creating sounds Facts. that people weren't ready for, right? Yeah. As of now, do you think that you are creating, you know, music that is ahead of its time and, you know, something that will become commercial one day? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I'll just say this. Like, while while we create music, I don't think our aim is to do that, right? Um, like music is our weapon of choice, but I think our goal is to affect culture, right? Yeah. So it's not like not necessarily about like music at its time as much as it is about like moving forward the culture, mm-hmm. right? And and so I think when you, while to some it might be semantics, I would disagree. I would say that keeping that aim specifically targeted means you move differently, right? It means you focus on a more 360 approach to things. It also means you focus more on experiences, right, versus events, right? Um, You want to focus on how people feel, right, versus a song, right? Um, And so for us, it's just about challenging. You know, I saw somebody talk about uh, somebody was downing millennials on Facebook the other day. And uh, and they said somebody said that millennials are too sensitive. Mm. Right. And my response to that was that, you know, that's the beauty of millennials. Right. The beauty of millennials is that, uh, you know, being sensitive or allowing yourself to be sensitive is not an easy thing. Mm-hmm. That's allowing yourself to be vulnerable. And when you allow yourself to be vulnerable, you get to speak on and uproot feelings, emotions, and ideas that were buried for hundreds of years. True. The people before you weren't allowed to say those things or they would have been 
something, right? But now you have artists that are saying things that speak to people so deeply because they're speaking for them. They're speaking for people who may not have the platform or the courage or the strength to admit, to speak transparently about these things. Um, And for me, when I look at Memphis, right, I think that's very important, specifically important to this community. You know, uh, I think I, I speak a lot about accurate representation and how a lot of times this city it just seems like the people with the resources and power uh, to you know, put up a poster of what this city is never want to show what it really is. Oh, no. You I know. That's with the money. Right. You know. <laughs> and so I think now accurate, accurate representation is very important. Wow. Yeah. Now, if you could describe what the Memphis sound is right now. Mm. Is there a sound? Oh, yeah. I think... Um, well, I think I think Memphis will always um, show love and have respect for that OG sound, right? So, you know, like let's be clear. Like I used to travel the world as a kid. I never heard nowhere else but Memphis. You could go. I never heard it nowhere else. You go down. You go to Atlanta. No Houston. They was on some different stuff, man. That stuff came from Memphis, right? And so I think because of that, there's always going to be that that love and respect and that that edge to to our music. But I do think now, uh, with the globalization of uh, visibility, you know, the internet and what that's done to our access to other cultures, um, I also think the influx of, uh, you know, back in the day, I used to say Guyanese. Nobody knew what I was talking about. Now, you know, people know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, and so um, <clears throat> I think... I think that's added some new elements to it, right? Um, but I do think the one thing that has not changed and will forever be the Memphis sound, uh, and this is going to sound like a shameless promotion, but it's not. It, Go for it. <laughs> it is that, like, daring approach to reality. Yeah. You know, being unapologetic, like, about something. Mm-hmm. You know, like, that's... You know, that's always been in the roots and in the veins of Memphis, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. And and I love that uh, you call your um, label unapologetic. Yeah. Like, that's what this podcast is all about, too. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I want my guests to come in here and tell their story unapologetically, like, from beginning to end. Don't be scared to say anything. Just be transparent. And when I saw you guys on the campaign with Unapologetic, I was like, who are these people? I love it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. That's love. Thank you. Okay. And so you mentioned it's about moving the culture forward, right? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so where do you see the Memphis arts and culture scene going in the next five years? Well, the, I, so the, I think one of the key reasons why that the change in music had happened, I think, First, I thought it was just music. Then I realized it's not. And then I thought it was the creative sector. Then I realized it's not. It's much bigger. What is happening is that we all know change doesn't happen. A change comes at the hands of frustration, right? So when you're comfortable and feeling good, change is not going to happen. You got to be like angry, mad, or afraid. Something. You got to be, you know, in the in the in the you know midst of frustration. Um, and so what I call it is a silent riot, right? So the reason for these changes here is because people are finally being either mad, displaced, 
you know, something enough to where they're like, all right, man, we got to take this into our own hands. Like, I'm tired of waiting on these people. I'm tired of doing this. I'm tired of doing that. You know, and when I look at the creative scene here now, it's just a whole bunch of people who are bossing up and being like, nah, man, you know what? We got to get our own space. Forget these fools. You know what I'm saying? Like, what? These people don't want to put us on? All right, cool. We putting ourselves on. Like, you know, and that's what's happening right now more than ever. Um, And I'm loving it. Um, And so I think what that's going to breed is like, I think... I don't know. I think, and I think that's <laughs> great. great and I think that's great. Yeah. I, I think that's great. The fact that it's in, that the, the playing field has been leveled. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when the playing field has been leveled and people have access or people feel empowered mm-hmm. to control their destiny. Now it's time to pull out the popcorn. Let's see what happens. Let's like, see what happens. Yeah. You know, but, Memphis I mean, just the, I guess, the social structure, um, poverty, some of the same things that we've been talking about for a long time have been the same. But like you said, you feel something. It's a movement going on right now. Oh, yeah. Things are about to peak. So I'm glad you're a part of the movement, Mr. I Make Man. Thank you. Now, that makes me think about the whole thing with the main street downtown, yeah. you know, is a petition going on mm-hmm. to change M A I N to M A N E. What happened with that? Um, I mean, first off, like I, I was proud of myself for doing something that just brought out all the, um, you know, the guys who want me to hang from trees and stuff like that. Those dudes came out. Shout they out to came y'all. Out. If y'all listening, shout out. You know what I'm saying? Um, I doubt y'all listening though. But <laughs> oh yeah, it was ugly like that. It was it was bad. You know what I'm saying? It was really bad. Uh, I didn't. And it's funny too because Memphis is so black, so it makes you wonder like, why are y'all still here, fam? Like y'all need it's to be down out. Like, <laughs> yeah, like people in Memphis. This but the you wrong see who if, run you, it though. if you feel like this, something is wrong for you for, just for still being here. Like they not going nowhere. Yeah, I know they drive in a long way to to work here. They're driving yeah. about an hour. You know? That's about right. <laughs> um, what happened to that? So, yeah. I mean, we got the necessary, uh, you know, shout out uh, Craig Brewer, shout out Juicy J, mm-hmm. um, shout out um, everybody who supported um, the the petition. We got all the signatures we needed. Uh, shout out Devin Steele, you know what I mean? Um, and so, you know, it, it, hmm, how do I speak on that? There's certain things I can't say right now, so I'm just, mm-hmm. just being transparent. Um, but like, let me just say this. Um, I won. You won. I won. Okay. Um, I will explain. I will give you the exclusive in a few months. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. Good. 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 Yeah, yeah. There's just some things you. that need to be explained uh, that I just can't. Shout out to a sheet of paper that I signed. But <laughs> so it looks like we will be getting that main street. Hey, man, I, I, you see, come on, man. I'm, I'm going to have to be on the phone. Look, look, look. He, gonna come with the, he coming back. James Deuce will be back with the exclusive. He'll be my yeah, first time repeat guest or not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I feel good about that. And that yeah. piece of paper you signed. Wow. Okay, so we've talked about music, um, yeah. but you still didn't tell me how you just said, bam, I'm starting unapologetic label. Yeah, so, I mean, it, I had a... Um, I had a kind of epiphany. Uh, I was I was in the studio with my man uh, Kevin DeLebon. I was making some music, and uh, he's a lawyer, so he's he's really good at helping me figure out my thoughts. 
you know, because he's a lawyer. And um, anyway, one day I was kind of down on myself. Um, I said to my, you know, I was thinking about all the producers that I admire. And uh, I'd spent, you know, the majority of my career as a musician really just trying to find my tribe. You know what I'm saying? Like I was, um, I never, you know, my wife, she said I was a reluctant leader. You know what I'm saying? Like I never really, I just wanted to be a part of something. I wanted to be 40. Mm-hmm. You know, 40 at OVO. Like, yeah. I just wanted to be him. Like, I just wanted to be a guy who, you know, superstars out, being popular, and I was just in the studio and doing that. And um, and I never really had that success. And I, But I know that, like, the true success of a producer isn't just, like, a dope beat for me, right? So the producers I looked up to, which is, like, Dr. Dre, Pharrell, you know, um, Timbaland, you know, uh, you know, all of those guys. You know, those were guys who, like, their music, their artists affected culture. Yeah. You know, being a producer on demand. Exactly. It was. It was. It wasn't about this. It was about the mind. It was about yeah. the approach to things. You know, and um, you know, I had always wanted to accomplish something like that, but I, I just felt like I had been, I had failed at accomplishing that. You know, and my man Kevin, he said, uh, "Yo, man, like you can't, you can't be too hard on yourself, though, man." I was like, "Why? Why not?" And he said, "Well." Every team you've ever been a part of, you were drafted into. Mm. He's like, you've never put together your own team. Mm. You know, he's like, Steve Jobs was very meticulous with who he chose. He didn't just choose computer programmers because they could program. Mm-hmm. There was a whole, you know, criteria of the kind of people he needed to create Apple. You know, and or to, you know, facilitate uh, what was happening at Apple. And, um, and so it just gave me something to think about. Like, man, like, do I really have what it takes to build this team with the culture that's necessary to succeed. And uh, I, I said, challenge accepted, hold my beer. And uh, <laughs> and so I began to, to pull people in um, to create this team that operated, uh, you know, one of my biggest inspirations on planet Earth, Malcolm X. Yeah. You know, um, you know, his militants, his approach to what he desired was inspiring to me mm-hmm. and to build a team with that culture mm-hmm. um you know and the funny thing about it is just that like i tell people all the time character over everything right like i don't care about your talent mm-hmm. i care about how bad you want it mm-hmm. and so but somehow i get surrounded by the most talented people ever air quotes like a um for yeah but i think i think <clears throat> people mistake that people mistake hard work for talent mm. right and so that he wasn't born with that he just didn't sleep last night he was working on it <laughs> forever you know and um you know and then you know guys like Cameron Bethany reached out to me to produce a song and I ended up signing him so uh, he's he's one of the most talented people to ever exist <laughs> um it's kind of ridiculous uh mm-hmm. you know and then, oh, you know yeah. pro and off him and 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 you know and then we just start building uh this community you know we start we start inviting or we start bringing in visual artists mm-hmm. um <clears throat> i go and say something i ain't even said here i even said out in public yet um you know unapologetic was never supposed to be only about music right it was just created by a musician mm-hmm. but again this is about culture and so when, when it's about culture it's about a 360 effect yeah. right so it's not just about what you're listening to it's about what you're wearing. It's about what you're looking at, right? 
It's about what you're eating. It's about all those things. Those are all culture. And so it took us a while to get the kind of legs underneath us to expand the way we wanted to expand. Uh, but this year, uh, and actually next month, we're going to be announcing officially uh, the signing of our very first visual artist. Wow. Uh, it's a guy named 35 Miles. Uh, he'll be dropping a uh, short film. Mm. And uh, and then we're going to start. I have a whole marketing plan specifically for visual artists that I think is going to change the game because I think I think the marketing for visual artists is boring. Mm. And I, spice it up. Be spicy. Work. I have some ideas. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So it, it it was, you know, it was never meant to only be music. Um, but we just needed the right legs underneath it to expand. So, wow. Yeah. I mean, so innovative and forward thinking. I'm loving it. Thank so, you. I know, you know, we talked about you being from Orange Mound. What is your role and significance with the complex? You know, yeah, the complex. The yeah, the collective. Um, shout out Victoria Jones. Um, yeah, I mean, about a year and a half ago. So, Victoria, the ED of the collective. She and I are like just really good friends. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as organizations leading uh, movements with significant momentum here, we would just meet, you know, like maybe like once a month, we would just go get coffee. And um, and essentially we would just be meeting to complain to each other <laughs> just to have like a CEO venting session mm -hmm. about what was happening. These people, these people won't listen, blah, 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 you know, and um one day I just, we were meeting and I was just particularly frustrated. And I said, yo man, what are we doing? Like we need to really put intention in finding what part of this Venn diagram we both sit in and multiply instead of add, right? So three and three shouldn't be six, it should be nine. Uh, but that can only happen if we move together in a way uh, that shows that we move together. And so the first thing that we started doing was just showing up to meetings together. Mm -hmm. And so like, whether it was a meeting with, you know, the downtown, you know, uh, people or whether it was a meeting for, with this, with the Brooks Museum, whoever it was, right. Um, we would just show up like unannounced to each other's meetings just mm -hmm. so that people knew like, <laughs> we, here. we we roll together, <laughs> gang, gang, you know what I'm saying? Like collective and unapologetic, what, you know what I'm saying? And, um, and so I guess, you know, what we wanted to happen happened, mm -hmm. which was just that once people started seeing that we were moving together, <laughs> the way we were received was very different. Mm. Um, and so uh, to make a very long story short, um, people started asking our individual organizations to inhabit their spaces in their parts of town. Right. So people would come to me and be like, unapologetic, we would love for you guys to be in this here for a year and just program it and blah, 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 whatever. People would reach out to the collective, same thing. Um, those parts of town were never our parts of town. Right. Um, and so we just kind of looked at each other and we were just like, hmm, these people really believe in our ability to uplift a community or build a community with what we're doing. You know, are we underestimating hmm. our influence, especially together, you know, and if if we do have the power to uplift a community with what we're doing, where would we go? I'm from Orange Mound. Orange Mound is the 
<laughs> Orange Mound is the first uh, neighborhood founded for and by black people in oh. the United States of America. Perfect. Yeah. So if there's a community, you know, and we had just lost Kroger. Mm-hmm. It's a complete lack of investment in a very historic community. Let's start there. Mm-hmm. You know, and so um, the collective set up home at the complex, which is right at Lamar and Park and Airways, that that block. Um, yeah, and that's just like family. Mm-hmm. You know, that's family. That's that's the beginning. That isn't that... I like you. So there, <laughs> there, there is much more coming. Much more. You're going to share in a future Yes, time? yes. There's Are much more coming, but that was the first domino. Okay, wow. Yeah. I'm looking forward to what's coming with that. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to it. And, you know, I've read many articles um, with you mentioned, and a lot of them said that, like, you've only performed in one black-owned. Yeah facility that was that was a new day that was yes. uh yeah okay. yeah i was um what's my man jw gibson yeah yeah shout out him mm-hmm. um but uh yeah man like it's kind of crazy you know it, it's kind of crazy when you think about it um you know this very black city historically black uh historically black creatives that made this space and even the most famous non-black creative I wonder where he got it from, mm-hmm. um, you know. And meanwhile, we never benefit the greatest from our creativity, right? So, you know, I may make, you know, this amount of money, but there's somebody who doesn't look like me making more money off my creativity than me mm-hmm. in a city so black. Um, and, you know, I'm a firm believer that no long-lasting change comes without ownership Mm -hmm. like if i don't control if i can't say when and how something happens if my community doesn't have if we're begging you if we're asking you Mm -hmm. that's not change that's not change we need to be able to make the decisions for us and i also think i mean economically this city doesn't thrive Mm -hmm. without specific attention on the black community Mm -hmm. period uh and so if you want you know, less poverty in a city so black means more black people need to have money. Let me tell you how that happens. Okay. Like, <laughs> okay. You know, so. Wow. You may be the one to solve our poverty issues. I, am, I'm, I, I'm, I see some <laughs> politics. <laughs> nah, I'm going I'm, I'm to leave Shout out Tammy. I'm going to leave that for Tammy. I'm going to leave that for Brittany. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just stay behind the mask. I don't know. I, I got a feeling now. <laughs> I'm usually right with my family. But we'll revisit that topic again soon. Indeed. Now let's talk about Ted X yeah. because you have accomplished one of my bucket list items. Mm. You have been, you have performed for Ted X Memphis. Yeah. How did that all come about, James? Man, uh, so it was definitely a top ten uncomfortable moment. Was it? Uh, at least post New York. Mm-hmm. New York is a whole different level. So you know, post being in New York, um, I was on a panel for the new Memphis Institute, um, Celebrate What's Right. Um, shout out to Epicenter uh, for having me. Um, and um, I just, you know, I was on the panel saying some very daring things. And I was making some people in the audience clearly uncomfortable <laughs> with what I was saying because 
you know, to me, the questions that I was being asked, those were the answers. And anything else would have been me playing the game, the political game, the money game. Uh, I feel like, look, you know, I run a company called Unapologetic. You don't invite me to these spaces for me to play the game, you know. Uh, and, you know, there were some other people on the stage playing the game quite well. So, you know, shout out to them. But, um, you know, I was saying some things that were making a lot of people very uncomfortable to the point where Leslie Smith, uh, she had to say that on the mic. She was like, that's what innovators do. They make people uncomfortable. And, uh, and I remember I just got off the stage and I was feeling very uncomfortable uh, because I wasn't sure if I played my cards right. You know, as as much as I am daring and disruptive in terms of speaking truth, you know, my, my organization, you know, is filled with people uh, waiting on that next level, you know, who quit their jobs to work with me, you know, um, who are, you know, some of them are at my house right now, like, you know, working, you know. And so while I'm okay with being daring and disruptive, a lot of times I contemplate, man, should I have done that? If I hadn't done that, would I have gotten an opportunity to help my my guys eat better? You know what I'm saying? So, um, so I walked off the stage like very unsure with like, man, did I play that right? You know, did I say the right things? Um, and I was just very nervous about you know what would happen next. And a woman walks up to me and she says, "Hey, James, have you ever heard of TED?" <laughs> I said, "Uh, yeah." You know what I mean? Like like TED Talk, you know? <laughs> and uh, and she's like, "Yeah." I was like, yeah, I've heard of it. It's great, you know. And <laughs> and she said, uh, you should do a TED Talk. I said, um, what? <laughs> All right. And she said, uh, yeah. She was like, I'm going to send you an email. And, like, I want you to do a TED Talk. It'll be happening in February. And what month was that? This was in December. Wow. It was, it was December? I think it was December. Yep. Yeah, so I had, you know, about 60-plus days to get this TED Talk situation right. And uh, I didn't honestly. When she told me that, I didn't. I still didn't think it was going to happen. It wasn't until I got the email that I kind of freaked out. Like, yo, I'm about to do a TED talk. This is crazy. That's major. <laughs> That's major. And you were so creative with it. I I watch a lot of TED talks. Yeah. And I've never seen one as creative as yours was. Thank you. You had, you, you had your equipment up there. Yeah. yeah. Like a, a little scene going on with actors. I yeah. said they let him do his thing unapologetically. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was crazy. I'll tell you what, that TED Talk changed a lot about a week before the TED Talk. Really? I wrote it. Mm. And what I was going to do and how I was going to present it changed. It was Cameron. Cameron. Shout out Cameron Bethany. He was in the studio. He was like, hmm. What if you did this instead? And I was like, "Yo, that's genius!" And um, and so I just switched up. I switched up a lot of the TED talk, and um, I knew I wanted Cameron on stage with me because Cameron is like the easiest way to get people to pay attention ever. Um, it's he's kind of ridiculous. Anyway, and then I had Offerman, Aaron James up there to act out some of the scenes that. Uh, that I had going on in the TED Talk. So, you know, I already knew that just simply wearing a mask was going to be different. They was going to be like, what is Yeah, this yeah, I, I already knew. But I think the turning point for me in writing that TED Talk, I actually locked myself, I didn't lock myself, but I closed myself off in my vocal booth mm-hmm. just because in that booth you don't hear anything. 
but your thoughts. Yeah. That's it. Like, um, and I think the turning point was like a lot of my friends, some of my friends who had done TED Talks like nationally, um, I had, I was reached out to them and they were just like, yeah, man, you got to do it like this and do it like that and do this. And they were sending me links to other TED Talks to study and, and yeah, and I I just you know what it was was like I I didn't find any inspiration mm-hmm. in any of those TED talks, even though they were good TED talks. But I kept th- I kept feeling like something was wrong. Like I didn't know what it was, and it wasn't until Cameron said what he said. It wasn't just the idea. It was I think the thing that I got from what he said was that I'm not these people. Exactly. You know, I'm not these people, and you know, I am very dedicated to. You know, some years ago, I told myself that I no longer subscribe to societal norms. Like, I just, I'm done with that. Like, people, I got to do this by this age. And kind of, I don't care about none of that stuff. I'm just doing what I do. You know what I'm saying? And um, when it came to the TED Talk, it was, I'm very comfortable with being in a room with 10 people. And like eight of them having no idea what I'm talking about. But one of them saying like, or two of them saying, that hit me in the heart, you know? And so when you're, when you're okay with that dynamic, when you're okay with not pleasing everyone or a majority, that sets you up to do whatever. That's when the magic happens. Yeah, you know, and, and that's the eerie thing about, even during the TED Talk, so I'm on the stage <laughs> and, I, and I'm going through the motions and I'm, I'm you know, doing all this stuff and I'm just like, I'm a musician. So I'm, when we perform, I'm used to like people moving mm-hmm. and like I'm I can see how they're responding mm-hmm. to what we're doing. And everybody was just stone cold looking at me. Yeah, that's how the audience is yeah. statues. And they were just like just looking at me. And I remember just thinking like, this is not working. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I remember thinking like, Well, you did your best. Like, you know, you oh did, well, we 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 thing. moving on. And um and then I finished it. And uh, and then everybody stood up and clapped. Standing out, boom. Yeah, everybody stood up and clapped. And then um, and then the guy came out and was like, "Yeah, that was James Dukes." And then everybody stood up and clapped again. See. And um, and I walked back to the back, and I was looking at Cameron and Aaron James, and I was like, "Yo, we just did that. Man, that worked. Like, that was crazy. Like, <laughs> and I was." And it was and it was it was wild. It was it was a crazy experience. <laughs> you know what? In your TED talk, you stated uh, secrets don't start movements. Yeah. Uncovering them does. So, what secrets have you set free mm. in order to start your unapologetic movement? Man, you you want me to get real? Okay. She didn't hit me with the real questions, y'all. All right. Um, no fluff here. Big shout out, my man Cameron Bethany. Um, you know, it's funny. Cameron is literally in the top five most talented people I've ever met in my life. Like, he's amazing. Um, when he came, he first hit me up to get me to produce a song for him. Uh, I ended up just really falling in love with everything he was doing creatively. And, you know, we tested him. We tested his character. We tested to see how he would, you know, maneuver under pressure. Right, if he was dedicated, if he was resilient, all of these things. Did like, you haze Cameron? I haze everybody. <laughs> it seems like a <laughs> <Yeah>. hazing process. <laughs> I haze everybody. Character development. Everybody, okay. like, if you can't, I'm telling you, 
I'm no longer going to be the alien. Okay. I only move with people who move at that level. Boom. Okay. Um, and so once we decided that he did move at that level and he was ready to reach the next level, I asked him to be a part of Unapologetic. I said, hey, man, you know, all this you paying me stuff, how about we just change this up a little bit? And, <laughs> you know, and we just we create something that can benefit us both in a, in a much longer way, in a bigger way. And I told him I wanted him to be, I was starting Unapologetic, and I wanted him to be a part of it. He said, okay, man, yeah, let me think about it. Like a week later, he came back, and he just started rambling in the studio. Um, that, I mean, he was he was co- he was making sense, but I guess I just didn't know where he was going mm-hmm. with everything because I knew we were talking about unapologetic, but I didn't know what he was trying to say. Um, and what he was trying to say was that he was apologizing to me, um, because he was gay. And that um, he he was oh he he wanted to let me know that if that wasn't okay, that he understood because he didn't want him being gay to hurt my company wow. and my organization, and that he had kept that a secret from me, and he wanted to apologize to me for um, you know for he just wanted to be honest and be transparent with me. I guess he thought that he had hid that uh, from me. You already him. knew probably. Yeah. I told, I, the first thing I responded to him was like, bro, you did not hide that very well. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I was, <laughs> that was the very first thing I said to him. Um, the second thing I said to him was like, you know, I don't care about that. Like, I, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is unapologetic. The name is real. Like, I don't, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I, I, I need you to not apologize for that. Thank you. You know, I need you to really be who you are, you know, and be comfortable, you know, being who and what you are uh, at the very least with me. You know what I'm saying? And and here and in this moment, because if we're going to make music together, I'm going to need the real vulnerability from Cameron Bethany to speak your truth. You know what I'm saying? And then I told him. I said. Thank you for telling me that. Now I'm going to tell you something. If this was three years ago. That might have been a problem, you know, that might have been a problem because I wasn't where I am now. You know, I grew up walking down the street in the mound when I was growing up, like literally the worst thing you could be called was gay. You know, I like I've seen people bend over to tie their shoes up and because of that, they were gay. And then they get beat up and stabbed with, with a rock on the bus. You know, and so it was scary to be, you know, associated with that word on any level. You know, I never had I never had a dislike or or a problem with anyone's lifestyle. I did have a fear that someone seeing me like that would me would end up with me being harmed, you know. Um, and so because of that, I I might have distanced myself from that at some point in my life. Um, And I told him, I said, this is happening for a reason. In this moment and in this time, this is happening for a reason. I'm like, you know, and now I'm at a point in my life where it's like, 
I don't care about that no more. Now, not only that, I don't care about, you know, because he, he was talking, he was telling me how much, like, you know, I don't want to be out with you, you know what I'm saying? And, like, people assume you're gay because you're with yeah. me, you know what I'm saying? And we're chilling and, and you know, doing whatever. And I was like, man, I don't care. Like, whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't care about none of that stuff, man. I just care about making dope music and affecting the culture, you know what I'm saying? And, um, it, and you know, there was crying. There was uh, it was it was a real moment. It was a real moment of me admitting, you know, issues in my own uh, life that had brought me to that moment. And then you know, same for him, you know. And that's that was the beginning of our unapologetic journey. Was was us talking and having that real conversation. And then him say the final thing that was said was, he said, um, he was like. You know, I'm not unapologetic, though. And I was like, well, let's record your journey to it. Right. Let's 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 write songs that reflect how you feel now. And your journey to being a true you. You know, wow, that's deep. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's something that, you know, I feel like stuff like that needs to be said more. Because in today's society, like, we need to tell the journey. Like, we weren't, wherever we are right now that's a great place, we weren't always there. No. You're correct. You know, like, we were not always there. We didn't We didn't always have the greatest ideas and the greatest social outlooks and, nah. No. Everyone you know, has a story. Yeah, but I think, you know, talking about, you know, again, like, I think about Malcolm Little and then I think about Malcolm X, you know, and how, you know, one of the key things that made Malcolm X, Malcolm X was that he was once Malcolm Little, you know, and we need to all accept each other for our, with our journeys. You know, I think about my dad the same way, you know, my dad's the greatest, but he's been through some stuff, you know. Thank you for sharing, James. That, that yeah. really touched me right there. Because when you think about it, you know, Cameron had felt like he had to come to you and tell you that. You never know what he'd been through prior to maybe going into a business deal, you know, something yeah. on that level and what he had to go through, you know. Yeah, no, no, Cameron's my brother. I mean, that's. Wow, Mr. Bethany, unapologetic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Cameron's my brother, man. I love okay. that. Dude. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing. I, I have heard a song. Um, with you guys yeah. already. Okay. So I'm, I'm okay, okay, oh, Mr. Bethany. Um, yeah. You know what? That makes me think about, you know, like in your TEDx talk, uh, you know, you talked about growing up with your father, him going to rehab, you going to the meetings, everything that you've been going through. And, you know, recently, a lot of our black men and celebrities have been coming out talking about their battle and bouts with anxiety and yeah. depression. Yeah. So, um, you know, with that being said, what have been some of your sources of support? Man, it's another real one. Um, I definitely have, like, I think I just learned what self-care was. Um, and I, I think, I think most of my life, I don't I don't feel like I'm exaggerating when I say this. I don't think I loved myself most of my life. 
Um, I think I loved my ambitions. I think I was obsessed with getting out of poverty. I think I was obsessed with, uh, you know, just defying the odds, right? You know, I mean, statistically, I'm not supposed to be here right now. Definitely not supposed to be successful on my own terms. Um, you know, and so I think I was just obsessed with, with those ideas, but I don't think I knew what it was to love myself until much later than I was supposed to know. And um, now I just make it a point to surround myself with people and allow them, the people that love me, uh, to hold me accountable to loving myself, you know, um, you know, and you know, sometimes that's, you know, what are you eating or did you eat? Right. Sometimes it's simple as that. Uh, A lot of simple uh, sometimes it's, you know, um, setting boundaries with people. Sometimes the people around me have to set boundaries for me, <laughs> okay. you know, um, you know, I think one thing about being a creative is that, you know, the source of your creativity is your emotions, right? It's, it's, it's what you go through. And so you can't ever, you can't tuck that away. Not if you're an artist, because that's, that's literally what you're painting with. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you can't bury it. Like if, if I was like working like for a train or something like that, or, you know, I was a construction guy, I'm, I'm, I could tuck away my emotions and like not see them for 60 years, you know, but as an artist, I have to, you know, it's very common to, for musicians to be on the almost, you know, tearful in the creation of their music. Um, and so because of that, like balancing out anxiety and depression uh, can be tough uh, because you're kind of always holding these like very almost on fire coals. Right. And and then a part of being an artist is like being very self-aware. Right. So, again, you don't even have the bliss of ignorance. Right. Because you're you're watching how you feel about something and you're questioning it and then you write a song about it or you make something about it, you know. And so it's tough to do that. But I think if you surround yourself with the right people who truly love you and, and most importantly, you allow them to love you, right? <laughs> right. You you can be very defensive and ah, don't bother me, you know. But if you allow them to show and and you receive the love they have for you in the form of care, for me that's the balance. I, I don't I don't trust me, like <laughs> you know what yeah. I'm saying. You not not in that regard. I need I need I need that. You know. Wow. Yeah. What's next for you, Mr. Duke? What's next for you in unapologetic? Um. I go to see the paper again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me see. Um, a lot, you know. I think. I think uh, next year will be the biggest year of my career. Um, you know, I did not think I would start off this year doing a TED talk. I did not think some of the stuff that happened after that would happen, um, but. I'll say this. I think the next 365 days um, will 
we'll we'll change some expectations i think <laughs> i think um i'll just say this the same way i mentioned the visual mm-hmm. artists that we've signed on apologetic yep. um there's a lot more expansions that'll happen mm-hmm. right in the form of art in the form of uh idea um and also in in geographically wow. um i think i build a lot of most of the things that i build if not all the things that i build are built in the form of solutions, right? So I love to see problems and then just create. Uh, I don't put stuff here. I put stuff here. Like, this is a hole. It needs to be filled. This is superficial. It's not. It's unnecessary, right? Um, and there's a big hole in Memphis right now. A big hole in Memphis, right? Um, I'll say this. It bothers me that the biggest art form musically to come out of Memphis in the last two and a half decades, which happens to be the most consumed music on planet Earth, right? Mm-hmm. And the current sound of it happens to originate from Memphis as well, mm. right? It bothers me that our news outlets have uh, the best of and there's no rap. There's band, there's singing, there's everything, everything else that we do entertainment-wise. But literally, the biggest form of music on planet Earth, the thing that's come out of Memphis the most in the last two and a half decades, hell, even the last movie, was about rap. Interesting. There's no best of it here. You gonna fill that that hole up, huh? Yeah, I have an idea. Wow. Uh, okay, well, I'm looking forward to seeing what's next for you. And you know, Verbally Effective, we do on-location pods. So okay. I would love for <laughs> us to work with you in the future. Yeah, I would love that. But you know what? Like, we've been talking. We've been talking for over an hour now. I am definitely interested to hear your thoughts on this whole situation with the NFL and Jay-Z. Yeah. I want to know what you think <laughs> yeah. about Jay-Z partnering with the yeah. NFL because – Maybe on social media, it's just like split down the middle. Yeah, people that were whole fans act like they not a fan of home no more because it's crazy. he doing business with uh yeah. the NFL. What do you think about that? So I think um okay. So one of the things I just put this up on my Instagram, which is just that um like I'm not a fan of throwing away another black person. Now, I mean, of course there are R. Kelly, you good, my you gotta G. Go. Yeah, you good. It's it's a, it's a rap. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> sorry, R. Kelly. Actually, I'm not sorry. You gotta go. Um, but like, I'm not a fan of this. Like, so and so did what? Well, it's over for him. Like, I'm just not a fan of that, especially um, when you know when I know I don't know everything. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot I don't know. I'm I'm not the quickest to like uh just assume that I know or just to read and go through articles and just feel like okay, I am well informed. No, I am not. And so in terms of I'll say this, the optics of it don't look good. Mm-hmm. For Jack. Yeah. The optics of it don't look good. Um they don't look good for his brand, his his overall integrity, not just just as an activist, you know, because in the last few years, he's done some really good things. 
for a lot of good people Man, in tough situations. Yeah. Prison reform. Yeah, you know. So that's what it makes me think like. Yeah. I can't. You know what it is? I, I give it up to him. I'll say this. Like, he's earned my ability to pause and let's see what happens. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll admit this looks interesting. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and I and I could I I get the concern, um, but man, I ain't never seen none of Jay moves like. I'll just say this: like he's made so many wow, how did he do that moves Definitely. to where it just leads the line of like, okay, we might not get what's happening right now, right. you know what I'm saying? Later. But we will later. And if and if we don't, if this turns out to be something that's just terrible. Then that's when we hold him accountable, and that's when we say, "Hey, bro, this was messed up." Like we, you know, this is, et cetera. But right now, to just hop on that microwave media, you know, vibe of like, yeah. we know everything in thirty seconds. Now you're you're the worst person on planet Earth. No, I don't. I don't subscribe to that. Uh, you know. I'm interested to see what happens because yeah. you know now he has a seat at the table. They're saying that Jay Z um, will be a future owner very soon of a team. You know. People are saying, okay, he gets in, he'll have a seat at the table. Now he's able to infiltrate from the inside, you know, and work yeah. his way. Yeah. I think the thing that also people need to remember is just that um, Jay-Z ain't really hurting for money. So it, it's, it's kind of, I think while it, it, it it's obviously a lucrative setup, right, Um I think there's probably a million other ways Jay-Z could have did that in terms of whatever – money that he would have gained mm -hmm. and not lost this brand integrity mm -hmm. right so if he is doing this jay-z is not simple-minded like there's yeah. got to be something on the other side of that mm -hmm. you know um and again if there isn't then let's hold him accountable but as as of right now you know let's 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 not act like we know everything when we don't you know yeah well we're yeah. gonna see because nfl season about is about to start yeah jay-z is now over Social injustice. Is that right? Yeah, that's, inter that's interesting. That's improving uh, that. Yeah, I, I, and I'll tell you this: like, probably, probably the worst feeling that came from that, it wasn't about Jay Z, it wasn't about Kaepernick, it was about the NFL. Like, probably feeling like they did something. Like, you know, it was about these people I know don't really care. Yeah. You know, probably feeling like they have so they, this is good enough. You know what I'm saying? Um, but let's see where Jay can flip that, you know. So yeah, I got I got hope for you, Jay. You're yeah. gonna flip that. You're gonna flip this whole scenario. Yeah. And if not, baby, <laughs> we'll burn you alive. <laughs> let's see what happens. Okay, so now it's time for the verbally effective minute. Okay. Mr. Dukes. And mm -hmm. I'm gonna ask you a few questions yep. and I'm gonna give you an option and you tell me, you know, this or that and tell me why. Okay. Okay, favorite producer, and I've heard you mention both of these producers' names since you've been here. Okay. But you got to tell me who's your favorite and why. Mm -hmm. Timberland or Pharrell? Out of those two, definitely Pharrell mm -hmm. um, because of the culture piece. Mm -hmm. The culture piece. Pharrell affected culture for sure. Mm -hmm. A lot of the freedom artists feel now is thanks to Pharrell, yeah. for sure. Okay. Yeah. Favorite leader, and I know I know how you gonna answer this. Yeah. But they're both on a pedestal, I swear. Yeah. Malcolm X or Dr. Martin Luther King? 
<laughs> he got the X shot. <laughs> I got to roll with Malcolm. I mean, and, and that's, you know, there's nothing but uh, the greatest love and salute to, uh, to, to Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, but Malcolm, I, I think I'm just, I have an affinity for his story, mm-hmm. you know. And um, he just seemed like a man who could not be moved. Like he was, he was very unapologetic. He was, he was very firm and dedicated in his beliefs. Not that Martin wasn't, but with Malcolm, it was just different. Like they were very different. Yeah. 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 Okay. Last question: mm. um, If you went into politics in Memphis, never. <laughs> okay, now just roll with me. <laughs> Out of these two, two big, I guess different, I guess different things for you to focus on. Which was, which one would you focus on, mm-hmm. uh, on leading change, poverty or the arts? Hmm. I mean, I think, I, I think, I think you can do both. I think, I, again, I think seventy percent of this city's tourism comes at the hands of music. Uh, I think, man, I wish I could tell you everything. I think, <laughs> I wish you did too. <laughs> I think, um, I would focus on poverty. Mm-hmm. I would focus on poverty, but I would focus on poverty knowing I'm doing both. Right. Uh, that would be, you know, the trick up my sleeve. Like, you know, I think, um, there are so many artists in this city mm-hmm. empowering them financially means fueling their ability, fueling the economy of what they do, mm-hmm. which is art. You know, um, I think, um, yeah, I, I would definitely focus on poverty. I think you solve people's basic living. You, you solve them. You get them out of survival-based decisions and into desire-based decisions. Yeah. You handled the verbally effective minute well, thank Mr. Dish. <laughs> and thank you. I've learned so much about you on the pod today. You are awesome. And I feel like that your entire movement is just going to change the landscape of where thank we you. live right here. I'm trying. I'm trying to do my part. Just, just stay focused. Mm-hmm. Stay laser focused like you are. Uh, that is my superpower. <laughs> yeah, that's your superpower. Yeah. Okay, well, tell everyone how they can um, see all of the great things going on with We Are Unapologetic. Yeah, you can first check out weareunapologetic.com. But to get a a deeper sense of who and what we are, uh, you can download the Unapologetic World app, which is available for iOS and Android devices. Um, All the stuff that we can't show you or tell you on other people's platforms, we put it on a platform I created. Mm. It's in your app store right now. It's for free. Um... Yeah, and there's some interesting things in there. Or you can just follow me on Instagram <laughs> at I Make Mad Beats. Wow, thank you so much, Mr. I Make Mad Beats. Thank you. And good luck with everything you're doing. <laughs>